0: Well, tonight we conclude our look at the New Covenant and New Covenant theology, and before we get into our lesson, I wanted to bring your attention to a few resources uh, in case you're interested in learning more about New Covenant theology. One of them is a book called Abraham's Four Seeds. It is by an author named John Riesinger, and you will be hearing a little more from him a little bit later on. Uh, He is the Patriarch of New Covenant Theology. And this book, it's very small and it's a fairly quick read if you only want to skim through it. But if you want to dig in and actually understand it, it will take more time. But this is a great book to begin if you understand something about covenant theology or if you understand something about dispensational theology and you're interested in seeing how new covenant theology differs this is a great resource for you abraham's four seeds this book new covenant theology and i believe it's got tacked on there, questions answered by steve Lehrer, is also an excellent book uh, it is not so much polemical against the other two theologies although he does get into that some but it kind of walks through the major areas Uh, that we have been talking about, and others, and describing a New Covenant theological perspective. And then my favorite resource for New Covenant theology is newcovenantjournal.com. And if you go there, you might see a few faces and uh, authors that you recognize. I highly encourage you to go there and read uh, the articles. It's a fairly new website that's going to continue to update, and the purpose of the uh, website is to... Proclaim New Covenant Theology and the Gospel as we understand it, along with some very practical uh, helps as how to live out New Covenant Theology and the Gospel in our lives. So those are some resources for you, and I encourage you to uh, take advantage of them and learn about this system because, as is clear by now, uh, I'm persuaded this is the best and most accurate way to study the Bible, to understand the Bible and to look at how the Bible fits together. So those are some resources for you. Uh, We are going to continue tonight with our look at the question, What is New Covenant Theology? This is part two. Last week we uh, did part one, and we're going to continue where we left off after we do just a very quick review of some of the foundational things that we started with last week. So what is New Covenant Theology? And I just want to remind you again that New Covenant Theology is not New Covenant Theology. It's New Covenant Theology. So make sure you get that accent right, or you might be confused, especially if you come from a Covenant Theology background. It is a New Covenant look at the Scripture. It's basically a systematic understanding of the purpose of Scripture, an explanation of its primary theme, a way of describing how the Bible itself puts together its various parts. It is an attempt to answer the question, what is the message of the Bible? How do we make sense of its characters, its narratives, its commands? What is the overarching motif of the scripture? New Covenant Theology attempts to answer that question. It is what theologians call a hermeneutic. That is a a science of interpretation or a set of principles for understanding how to interpret the Bible. So that's what New Covenant Theology is. We look at it or are looking at it in distinction and contrast to covenant theology and dispensational theology. Those are the other two hermeneutical approaches or uh, interpretive approaches out there. And as we've talked about many times, you may not be familiar with those terms or maybe you weren't familiar with those terms before this class, but I assure you you cut your theological teeth in a church that teaches one of those two systems even if you didn't know it and so you've probably learned about what you believe or have believed as we've gone through this and I'm going to I have been trying to persuade you that new covenant theology is even better than the other two as far as interpreting the scripture but the way we're gonna look at this as we continue tonight is look at new covenant theology in contrast to those two other systems So a quick review of covenant theology in very simplistic terms. Covenant theology, as the name suggests, basically says the message of the Bible is how God deals with man through covenants. And if you recall, they say that there are two covenants that God made with man in the garden. The first was with Adam called the covenant of works, where God said, if you obey me, you will have eternal life after a probationary period. If you disobey you will have death. And, of course, Adam disobeyed. So that brought curse upon Adam and all of his offspring. But God was pleased not to condemn Adam there, but to actually be gracious with him. And he enacted the second covenant, the covenant of grace. And the rest of scripture is the unfolding of this one covenant of grace. So when we read about the covenants with uh, Noah, abraham moses david and then finally with christ those are not distinct covenants ultimately those are different administrations of this one covenant of grace that god made with adam those are the covenants of the bible according to covenant theology dispensational theology says the basic message of the bible would be summarized in the fact that god is dealing with man through various dispensations he dealt with adam in one way, until Adam fell, then he dealt with him in another way, and then he dealt with man in Noah's time in a certain way, and then another dispensation came with Abraham, and down the line, until we get to the church, the dispensation of grace, and there will yet be a future dispensation uh, that comes later on. Um, so that's a very quick overview of those two groups. New Covenant Theology simply says the message, the theme, the purpose of the Scripture is Jesus Christ. What's the the Bible about? It is about Jesus Christ. We would agree that covenants are crucial in the Scripture. We would also agree that God has worked in different dispensations in the Bible, but we would say that neither of those capture the real heart of the message of the Scripture. It is about Jesus Christ. The Old Testament looked forward to Christ. Everything was like a giant arrow pointing to Jesus Christ. And since Christ has come, everything that came before has been fulfilled, and we are now living in Christ as believers in this new covenant. So that is the driving message of the scripture as new covenant theology would see it. Let's pick up then with some of the areas of disagreement between new covenant theology and the other two groups. And we left off before we got to the issue of baptism and what covenant theologians believe about baptism versus what new covenant theologians believe about baptism. And here we will see how the theological assumptions of the two groups impact their understanding of baptism. Here is, uh, quickly, covenant theology's view of baptism. It starts like this. Circumcision was the sign of the old administration of the covenant of grace. God made the covenant of grace with Adam and in the old covenant, which they don't see as a distinct covenant, but a different administration, an older administration, circumcision was the sign given to mark those who are part of this covenant. The sign was given not only to adults, but also to children, males in particular, at the age of eight days old, and that inclu- uh, marked their inclusion in the covenant community. So when a boy was circumcised, he's now in the community of those who are part of this covenant. Uh, baptism is the sign of the new administration of the covenant of grace. So circumcision was the old administration sign, baptism is the new administration sign. And here's what the Westminster Confession of Faith says regarding baptism. And again, the Westminster Confession of Faith is the defining document for covenant theology. Quote, "...baptism is a sacrament of the New Testament, ordained by Jesus Christ, not only for the solemn admission of the party baptized into the visible church, but also to be unto him a sign and seal of the covenant of grace, of his ingrafting into Christ, of regeneration, of remission of sins, and of his giving up unto God through Jesus Christ to walk in the newness of life, which sacrament is by Christ's own appointment to be continued in his church until the end of the world. So you see the the confession there uh, articulating that baptism is the sign in the new covenant administration of the covenant of grace. It is to be given uh, to believers and their children and it marks their inclusion in the covenant community again a quote from the Westminster Confession of Faith not only those that do actually profess faith in and obedience unto Christ but also the infants of one or both believing parents are to be baptized and the logic is that since the old covenant sign of circumcision was given to kids to infants the new covenant administration should also give the sign to infants. So if it was true for the old, it is also true for the new. Now in the paragraph I read earlier, I want you to notice it says that this is the sign and seal of the covenant of being ingrafted into Christ and regeneration and remission of sins. Most covenant theologians do not actually give baptism uh, regenerating power. They would not say that baptism actually brings regeneration and the new birth, but it signifies, it is a sign of it, that if the child grows up and has faith, he will experience the remission of sins and so forth. However, there are some covenant theologians that do speak in terms that sound an awful lot like baptism actually bringing the new birth. So you just need to keep that in your mind as you uh, study covenant theology. The giving of the covenant sign of baptism to infants flows necessarily from the fact that the new covenant is essentially the same as the old covenant. That's where the the theological presupposition of the one covenant of grace bears fruit in their practice. It is essentially the same, and since the sign was given to infants under the older administration, it is assumed that this practice should continue under the newer administration. This explains, in their view, the lack of mention of infant baptism In the scripture. If you were debating with a covenant theologian, someone who practices infant baptism, and you were taking a position of believers' baptism, one of the things you would put, one of the questions you would put to the covenant theologian is where does the Bible actually teach or even list one example of a child being baptized? And sometimes they will argue from the household passages. You know, the places where uh, Cornelius and his whole household, or the Philippian jailer and his whole household were baptized, and they would argue that in that household there were infants. Now, I hope you all know the proper response to that. It's very simple. No one in any of those households were beneath the age of 16 years old. None of them. And so you put that to your covenant theology friend, and he says, prove it. Where does the Bible say that? And you say, in the same place it says that there were infants in the household. (laughs) But they will argue that the household must have included infants. Or sometimes they will go to Acts chapter 2, and verses 38 and 39. If you have your Bibles with you, this would be worth looking at quickly. Because when they're trying to defend their position from explicit New Testament texts, this is one that they will sometimes go to, uh, actually pretty frequently. This is Peter, the day of Pentecost. He is proclaiming the gospel to the people of Israel, to the men of Israel who are listening. And in verse 38, Peter said to them, Repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And here's the key verse For the promise is for you and your children, and all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call to Himself. And their response is see, it says the promise is for children, and so we should include the children in the covenant and the covenant sign. But if you look carefully, what is Peter saying? Everyone who repents and is baptized will be forgiven and receive the Holy Spirit. The promise that Peter is talking about is forgiveness of sins and the Holy Spirit. And he simply says, this promise is for you, the men I'm talking to, you men of Israel. The promise is to your children that if they repent and they are baptized, they will be forgiven and receive the Holy Spirit and as many as are far off the Gentiles in the far reaches of the earth if they repent and are baptized they will be forgiven and receive the Holy Spirit so to use this as an argument for infant baptism really falls because the promise presupposes repentance and they're not gonna argue that a eight-day-old baby actually repents so this argument doesn't stand very long but most of the time if this theologian knows his stuff he will not try to take you to texts in the New Testament in fact he will argue that the lack of examples of infants being baptized proves their point because they will say everybody understood that baptism is simply the replacement of circumcision. The reason they didn't need to say it is because most of the converts that are recorded are adults, but the whole community everywhere would have simply understood that of course the sign is to be given to infants because that's how it worked in the Old Testament. So it does, doesn't need to record infants being baptized. Everybody knows that's what the case. It's called an argument from silence and one of my heroes the man who's had more impact on me theologically or at least for a long time that was true uh, than anybody else was Dr. R.C. Sproul and he in a debate with John MacArthur uh, dealing with infant baptism versus believers baptism said it is an argument from silence but it's a deafening silence <laughs> that being the, uh, the case still doesn't prove the point in my opinion. Um, I believe it. It still is an argument from silence and I can't hear it, uh, the argument, and I believe it falls under the weight of closer examination. But that's how they will argue that everyone simply knows you baptize children of believers because in the old covenant they received the sign. The new covenant theology's view of baptism is that circumcision did not merely bring someone into the covenant community but actually attached them to the Covenant. When an infant was circumcised in Israel, it didn't simply bring them into the environment of the Jews, it made him a Jew and bound him to the terms of the Covenant. So that he grew up either receiving blessing from God or cursing from God depending upon whether or not he kept the Covenant. He did not grow up and choose later to become a Jew. He was a Jew by virtue of being born in that family and receiving the sign. So if you're going to carry that consistently through to the new covenant, then you have to say that baptism doesn't only bring the baby into the covenant community, but actually attaches that baby to the covenant. And most covenant theologians will run from that very quickly and say, no, 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 we don't agree with that. So they are inconsistent in how they apply the sign. But there are a few. I think we've talked about this in other contexts. Uh, There are those that hold to what has become known as the federal vision. I would call them consistent covenant theologians. Because they really do stick to their principles to the nth degree. And they will argue that when a child is baptized, he is attached to Christ, he is a member of the new covenant, but he may or may not be saved because he must grow up and have faith. So their position is a person can be a member of the new covenant, can be somehow in Christ and not have eternal life if they don't grow up and believe. That is consistent with their view of circumcision and the Old Covenant uh, sign. Obviously, as a New Covenant theologian, I would say uh, baptism has nothing whatsoever to do with circumcision, and so to see them as uh, a continuation one of the other is simply not what the Bible says. The circumcision was for the Old Covenant, baptism is for the New Covenant, and the two are not connected. Uh, We would see baptism as a believer's profession of faith. As Peter calls it, it's the appeal to God for a good conscience. It's admitting, I am a sinner, I am a wicked man, I need to be washed. And baptism is the outward calling out to the Lord and saying, please forgive me, please wash me clean. That's the way Paul described it in Acts 22, verse 16. Baptism is called there the act of calling upon the name of the Lord. It is not this sign of the old covenant, it is an appeal to God for forgiveness. Therefore, it is not to be given to any infant who is not calling upon the name of the Lord, who is not asking God for a clean conscience. And we would not suppose that a weak old baby has the ability to comprehend that he is a sinner and understand the content of the gospel and call out to God for forgiveness. It may be true, but there's no way we can know about that. We don't, As far as we know, infants aren't processing things. They may be calling out to mom for more food, but as far as we know, they're not calling out to God for forgiveness. The doctrine, uh, the, the infant baptism in covenant theology stands or falls with the doctrine of the covenant of grace. If the covenant of grace falls, and therefore the continuity between circumcision and baptism falls, then infant baptism falls with it. And since we reject the idea of covenant of grace, we also then reject the idea of infant baptism and, again, believe it's for those who profess faith in Christ to call out to God for forgiveness. Questions on this? Yeah, what's the dispensational theology? Is there anything? Yeah, the dispensational view would mostly agree with new covenant theology. Yeah. Most dispensationalists are Baptist in their practice of baptism and their view of the church as far as those kind of things. So, yeah, uh, New Covenant Theology and Dispensationalism would be pretty much on the same team on this issue. Good question. Do you understand now why Presbyterians say baptize their babies? Could you articulate that to somebody if you needed to? Really, what you need to remember is this. They see one covenant of grace through the entire Bible. So the old covenant and new covenant are really just that same covenant. So if the sign's given to infants under the old, it should be given to infants under the new. That's, that's really as far as you need to go to really gra- to get a, a, at least a, a, a surface level understanding of why. Another question? I know that uh, infant dedication is uh, something that, Yeah, that's a good question. Um, my uh, covenant theology friends like to call our infant, ba- our infant dedications uh, dry baptisms. <laughs> uh, obviously, baby dedications has absolutely no scriptural precedent. It's not commanded, it's not practiced, there are no examples. It is simply something that the church has developed. Uh, now, I don't know the history of it. In some cases, it may be because we don't baptize babies. They want to do something, and so they created this. In other cases, the way I look at it, when someone, when a family comes to me and says, would you de- dedicate my child? I say to them, yes, but I'm really going to dedicate you. I'm really going to call you before the body and remind you it's your responsibility to raise this child up in the fear and admonition of the Lord and call the community, the church, to support you in this and come alongside you. Um, there's nothing special that happens for the baby. Uh, certainly, we can pray for the baby. We can ask the Lord to you know, draw this child to yourself and grant faith and all that, um, which is all very good to do, but there's nothing magical or special about that, that at that age that can't be done when they're 5 and 10 and 16 and, and on up. So that, that is a, a, uh, a church tradition that has arisen somewhere along the line but has absolutely no biblical precedent. Yeah, good question. And frankly, if anyone's wanting to dedicate their child simply because those other guys baptize their babies don't do it. That's not the right reason to do it. Anyone else? Under the uh, New Testament Let me think of my question here. I forgot it actually. Uh New Covenant theology, view, sign of the New Covenant. Would we uh, ascribe to that being the Lord's Supper? That's a very good question. What is the sign of the New Covenant? Is it baptism? Is it the Lord's Supper? Again, we have the challenge. The Bible does not actually tell us this is the sign of the New Covenant. Um, the Abrahamic Covenant, is very clear, circumcision. The Old Covenant actually... Circumcision is not referred to as the sign of the Old Covenant. The Sabbath day is referred to as the sign of the Old Covenant. The Noahic Covenant, very clear, the sign is the rainbow. Nowhere does the New Testament say this is the sign. I think it could be argued Lord's Supper, could be argued baptism, could be argued spiritual circumcision. The circumcision of the heart where now the person wants to follow Christ. But I would be careful not to to put too much theological weight on any of those uh, as a real um, uh, to debate someone because we don't have the New Testament statement to to fall back on. The Lord's Supper and baptism are commanded, required of us, but neither of them are called the sign. Good question. Back in the back. How do they um, take the circumcision, which was just for the male, and expand that to the baptism, which is male-female, as far as babies go? Yeah, good question. Uh, why or how, what, what's the justification for ex- including girls in the sign in infant baptism? As we have talked about, they view the covenant of grace as the overarching from Adam after the fall all the way uh, the Bible is revealing the covenant of grace being expanded what we would call the old covenant through Moses with Israel they just look at it as the older administration of the covenant of grace and then when Christ comes along he enacts not the brand new covenant but a newer administration of this one covenant of grace uh, when Someone like me argues with them and say, but the Bible calls it new, it's supposed to be a better covenant. The writer of Hebrews says this is a better covenant based on better promises. They respond and say what's better about it is that it is expanded to include women, to include the Gentiles and no longer just the Jews. So that's how they would defend that position to uh, give it to girls, that now, isn't it great? It's not only for the boys, but it's for the girls. That's why it's better. Any others? All right. All right, so let's move on to another area of disagreement between New Covenant theology and the other two systems. And this has to do with Israel and the church. Quickly, here is Covenant Theology's view of Israel and the church. R. Scott Clark, who is uh, the professor of church history and historical theology at Westminster Seminary in California, says this, The church has always been the Israel of God, and the Israel of God has always been the church. Reformed covenant theology distinguishes the old and new covenants. It recognizes that the church was temporarily administered through a typological national people, but the church has existed since Adam, Noah, Abraham, and it existed under Moses, David, and it exists under Christ. So, in in their view, Israel is the church, and the church is Israel. They are two terms for the same thing. The Israel of God equals the church. All genuine believers of the Old Testament and the Old Covenant are rightly called the church. And all genuine believers in the New Testament and New Covenant are rightly called the Israel of God. They would divide the church into two categories. The visible church and the invisible church. Very similar to what Paul talks about in Romans 9 that not all Israel is Israel and you can see why they would do this because in their view Israel and the church are the same not all Israel is Israel within all of the nation of Israel there was the remnant the elect those who truly believed and were the people of God consequently there is the visible church today but within that is a, the group of the elect, the true believers. And so they would look at the whole landscape of all people everywhere who profess faith in Christ, and they would recognize that not all of them are sincere. There are plenty of people that call themselves Christians, especially those that think that you know American equals Christian, and they identify themselves as Christians. They would be in the visible church, they claim to believe in Christ, but within the churches that we can see with our eyes are the genuine believers that only God knows. They're invisible to us. We can't go around and determine with certainty you are a true believer, you're not. Also within the realm of the invisible church are infants because they have been baptized and brought into the covenant community. The visible church is the covenant community. Most of them would say the infant is not automatically part of the true church, the invisible church, but they are a part of the outer church, the, invisible ch- or the visible church, by virtue of receiving the sign of so, uh, baptism. Because the church and Israel are essentially the same, some of these things follow. All of these things follow. Infants should receive the covenant sign, the new covenant, just like in the old covenant. We've been over that. They would also argue that the work of the Holy Spirit is expanded, but not unique in the New Covenant. In other words, what we experience in the New Covenant, the Holy Spirit indwelling us, helping us overcome sin, and so on, those things were all true in the Old Covenant. So Moses had the Spirit the same way you and I have the Spirit again where they see a change in the New Testament is it is expanded to include not just the people of Israel now but the Holy Spirit is also poured out upon the Gentiles so it's different in degree not different in kind the Spirit was the same in the old and it's that way in the new because Israel's is the church church is Israel what was true for what is true for the church must have been true for Israel just maybe in a lesser degree also because of this they would say that worship principles and patterns for the church should be derived from the explicit instructions of the Bible and particularly in the Old Testament because God goes to great lengths in the Pentateuch to explain how he wants Israel to worship Him he gets down to the minute details of exactly what kind of animal, what kind of prayer, all the feasts and festivals, they are described to the nth degree. The New Testament does not give us a lot of information on what we're to do in worship. And so because of the view that Israel and the church are identical, if we're going to put together a worship service, we have every right to go back to the Old Testament and build our worship services based on the principles and patterns set there it's called the regulative principle and that means that we should let the scripture regulate how we worship and where this plays out is there are some churches some churches who are adherents to covenant theology that will only sing psalms in their worship services because those are the only songs that the scripture explicitly endorses are psalms. So they will sing only the, uh, the 150 uh, poems songs that we find in the, in the book of Psalms. Also they see the Sabbath as the day of worship and rest and so they would uh, frown upon anyone working at their job on Sunday And they would encourage worship because, in their view, that's what the Sabbath was primarily for the Jews. It's just now been transferred to the Lord's Day. Since the advent of Christ, moving on now, since the advent of Christ, ethnic Israel is no longer God's chosen people. The blessings and promises of the Old Testament will be fulfilled in Christ and His people, the church. However, there are some that expect a large conversion of Jews to Christ, especially based on Romans 11, they would see a future uh, inflow into the body of Christ from the Jews, but they wouldn't see any future for ethnic Israel. That's covenant theology's view of the church in Israel. Dispensational view of Israel and the church is almost exactly the opposite in every way. They see ethnic Israel as eternally God's people. God made a covenant with Israel, and that covenant will persist into eternity. The church does not replace nor fulfill the blessings and promises to Israel. If God said this is going to uh, come for ethnic, political Israel, it is going to come for ethnic, political Israel. If it hasn't been fulfilled yet, it will be fulfilled in the future. Uh, God keeps his promises. Classical dispensationalism holds that the church is a heavenly people and Israel is an earthly people. I believe we talked about that before. In original dispensationalism, they would say, see that the church spends forever and ever, amen, in heaven, while Israel has a kingdom here on earth forever and ever, amen. The uh, progressive dispensationalists have pretty much abandoned that idea uh, in our day. So because of this distinction of heavenly people and earthly people, the church shouldn't be involved in social political issues because that concerns earthly things. We're a heavenly group, so we should only focus on heavenly issues. The Holy Spirit established the church as a unique people of God on the day of Pentecost. This was a new and unpredicted event, according to dispensationalism. Jesus will return and rapture the church, this will be followed by a seven-year period called the Great Tribulation. And then the earthly, literal, thousand-year millennial period will begin. Israel will, re- will receive at that point all of the unfulfilled promises in the Old Testament, such as world dominion, David reigning on the throne again in Jerusalem, a child holding a viper and not being harmed, or the lion lying down with the lamb. Those are all literal promises that have not yet been fulfilled according to the dispensational view. Baptism, they would argue, is unique to the church and unrelated to the Old Covenant. So, as we've already said, they would be pretty much where New Covenant theology is on that. New Covenant theology's view of the church and Israel. They're both right and they're both wrong is where we would come down. I want to give you some quotes from... John Riesinger from Abraham's Four Seeds. He articulates this quite well. Think of this statement. The nation of Israel was not the body of Christ even though the body of Christ is indeed the true Israel of God. Let me say that again. The nation of Israel was not the body of Christ even though the body of Christ is indeed the true Israel of God. Covenant theology can't accept the first part of that. Dispensationalism cannot accept the second part. So Let me write this up here and see if that will help us understand where the two other views disagree and where New Covenant theology falls. The nation of Israel is not equal to the body of Christ but the body of Christ is true Israel covenant theology of course denies the first part of that statement they would say the nation of Israel was and is equal to the body of Christ, because they see Israel and the church as the same thing. Dispensationalists cannot accept that the church, the body of Christ, is true Israel because they see the nation of Israel as eternally God's people, and God still must finish his promises to them. The basic presuppositions, I'm quoting Riesinger again, the basic presuppositions of covenant theology make it mandatory that Israel be the church and be under the same covenant as the church. And the one thing the dispensationalist must maintain is the church's present and future distinction from Israel. What is essential to one system is totally anathema to the other. You see that. Uh, they are diametrically opposed in their view of Israel and the church. Dispensational theology cannot get Israel and the church together in any sense, whatever, and covenant theology can't get them apart. Dispensationalism drives a wedge between the Old Testament and the New Testament, and never the twain shall meet. Covenant theology flattens the whole Bible out into one covenant when there, where there is no real or vital distinction between either the Old and New Covenants or Israel and the church. Once we understand the biblical relationship of the nation of Israel and the body of Christ, we will have trouble accepting the system of covenant theology or the system of dispensational theology. So according to Riesinger, if we understand this and get what the Bible says about the Israel and the church, then you will reject covenant theology and you will reject dispensational theology. That's a bold statement, but I would agree with him. Covenant theology insists on equating Israel and the church and totally loses the newness of the new covenant and its function in the conscience of a believer. We talked about that. There's not a new covenant, it is a newer version of the covenant of grace. On the other hand, dispensationalism fails to see the church as the true fulfillment of God's promises to the fathers, and it totally loses the unity of the scriptures and God's single goal in redemption. We reject both of these views as being based on an incomplete understanding of the true unity of Scripture and the eternal purposes of God in the redemption of His one elect people. Now, that's a mouthful. That's a lot. I encourage you to get the book and read through and understand His arguments. But let me give you a few things that maybe will help. Contrary to covenant theology, new covenant theology does not consider the body of Christ or the church to be equal to or under the same covenant as Israel. Israel was under a covenant. That covenant is over. The church is under a covenant. That is a different covenant than the covenant God made with Israel. On the other hand, contrary to dispensational theology, we believe that the church is the ultimate expression of what God was doing with Israel so that he's no longer in covenant with ethnic Israel and there's not a future plan for them to dominate the world in a millennial period. So we would reject that. Now, it's important for me to make this qualification. New covenant theology is not replacement theology. This is the favorite axe to beat over the head of New Covenant theologians by uh, dispensationalists because this term is loaded with negative implications from a dispensationalist perspective. They would, what they mean by that is, are you suggesting that God had a plan but then He replaced that plan for Israel with the church. He gave up on Israel and just replaced them with somebody else. Now, from a certain perspective, I would say sure, but I wouldn't bring all of the baggage into that statement that they probably mean when they say that. Actually, it's not that we see the church as replacing Israel, but again as fulfilling as the final expression of everything God started out to do in Israel it was all going to Christ it was all going to the new covenant from the very beginning the old covenant as we have seen had a purpose it had a very specific and clearly articulated purpose in God's plan the old covenant with Israel did that it completed its purpose and it was like again a huge arrow pointing to Christ So God did not change his mind. He didn't get fed up with Israel and say, I can't take these guys anymore. You know, I gave them the law and they just can't keep it and they can't keep it and they can't keep it. What am I going to do? All right, I'm just going to be gracious and, and do a new thing and replace Israel with a bunch of Gentiles and just say, I forgive you. That's not what we believe. That's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible says God had a covenant with Israel, but it was all, always to get to Christ. Everything is about the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we're not arguing at all that God has replaced Israel with the church, but that he has fulfilled his plan to get to Christ and the new covenant. So if you adopt new covenant theology, which I hope you will with great exuberance, and someone comes and says, oh, you're one of those replacement theologians, you pound your hand on the desk and say, no, 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 I'm not. Here's a DVD for you to watch. New Covenant Theology believes the church was built on the foundation of the Apostles and the Prophets, Ephesians chapter 2. Therefore, it could not have begun with Adam. The church did not start with Adam or Abraham or Moses. It started with Christ. And as Paul says, it's built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ being the chief cornerstone. So if we're going to build a building with Jesus as the chief cornerstone and the rest of the foundation being the apostles, you can't go back and get Adam because the foundation wasn't laid for this building until thousands of years after Adam. So we would disagree with covenant theology at this point that the church and Israel are the same. The church began with the new covenant. New Covenant Theology agrees with dispensational theology that the outpouring of the Holy Spirit was a unique and unprecedented event and that the church enjoys the indwelling of, Holy, of the Holy Spirit in a way that Old Testament saints did not. This is, as we have already studied, one of the great blessings promised to Abraham, promised to Old Covenant saints, but not fulfilled until the New Covenant that God would pour out His Holy Spirit and that Spirit would indwell All of his people. That was not fulfilled until the day of Pentecost. That is not something the old covenant saints participated in. Certainly, the the Spirit was involved in the Old Testament, and no Old Testament saint who believed believed apart from the work of the Holy Spirit. But the Scripture says plainly that the Holy Spirit did not indwell someone permanently under the Old Covenant. In fact, King Saul, the Spirit filled him. He did works, but then he disobeyed God, and God rejected him, and the Spirit, we're told, left Saul. And if you remember, David in Psalm 51 is very concerned that the same thing will happen to him. After his sin with Bathsheba, he cries out, Take not thy Holy Spirit from me, because he knows in the Old Covenant that was possible. Under the New Covenant, once he fills you, he's there For all eternity. That is one of the blessings of the new covenant that was not true of the old covenant. New covenant theology disagrees with covenant theology that the church should model its worship after the practices of Israel. Old covenant worship served the old covenant purpose to reveal sin, to pronounce condemnation. There were the sacrifices, of course, but they were a constant reminder to the people you have sinned and broken the covenant. New Covenant worship is to offer a sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving because we have been forgiven. We do not come together on Sunday morning to go around saying, Sinner, 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 sinner. Now we do that some because we need to be humbled and reminded of the gospel and, and be challenged to, uh, to grow in righteousness. But our primary, primary purpose for coming together is to sing praise, to give glory to God, to be edified by His Word as those who have been completely and eternally forgiven. Very different purposes, and we look to the New Covenant scriptures for our worship principles, not the Old Covenant scriptures. New Covenant theology regards Israel to have uh, been types and shadows, and the church to be their fulfillment. Therefore. They are related, but they're not the same. That is, Israel and the church are related, but they're not the same. And now that the fulfillment has come, the types and shadows have been swallowed up and transformed. There were Old Testament sacrifices, the lambs. But now that Christ has come, the lamb has been sacrificed, it's not that Christ simply replaced the lambs, the animals, he fulfilled what they were pointing to all the time, and now that he has come, we don't go back and do the Old Testament sacrifices. And we would argue that's true across the board. Everything in Israel was to get to Christ, and now that he's here, we look to Christ, not to the Old Testament means of worship. They were shadows, they pointed, but now they're done. New Covenant Theology believes that the God, uh, sorry, that God... The Bible reveals only one plan of redemption. Let me say that again. New Covenant Theology believes that the Bible reveals only one plan of redemption and only one means of salvation. That's important to understand. In our distinction and indeed our separation of the Old Covenant and the New Covenant, we are in no way suggesting that Saints in the Old Covenant were saved any way differently than you and I are saved. The Bible reveals that it is clear, anyone who is saved is saved by grace through faith. The Old Covenant had a different purpose, there are two distinct covenants, but the plan of salvation is the same from the very beginning. That's where we would say, that's what does start with Adam, the plan of redemption. God promised someday the seed of the woman would come and crush the head of the serpent, That is ultimately fulfilled in Christ. But the covenants are distinct. Anyone who has ever been saved or will be saved receives forgiveness and righteousness through faith. No matter what covenant you're under, there's only one means of salvation, that is faith. However, the Old Covenant and the New Covenant are essentially different covenants with different purposes, and that's obviously in contrast to covenant theology, and the Old Covenant with ethnic Israel is over. Israel is no longer God's chosen people, that's where we would break ties with dispensational theology. And I will pause there for questions. So where would a covenant theologian go to say they're the same in the new covenant where we have indwelling permanently versus an old covenant where the Holy Spirit obviously was kind of in and out of the picture depending on what was happening at the time? Yeah, good question. Um, I'm not kidding when I say that a covenant theologian is predominantly going to argue theologically. In other words, they're going to argue for the covenant of grace and that Israel and the church are the same and that all the other covenants are basically outworkings of the covenant of grace. If you buy that, everything else follows. And So they would argue the Holy Spirit came upon Saul to be king and for a certain task and he was never a believer to begin with, which I would agree, I don't think Saul was a believer. And so there, the Holy Spirit was simply using him like he used Balaam's donkey for a purpose. But then you ask the follow-up question, was there really a chance that the Spirit might leave David, who was a true believer? And they would say no, because we know from the New Testament that the Holy Spirit comes in and dwells. So they're gonna argue theologically, not so much biblically. Again, with a covenant theologian, if you buy the covenant of grace, everything else they believe falls in line. I went to covenant theological seminary. First class I enrolled in was covenant theology. I was, I was a Presbyterian. I was convinced I was a Presbyterian. I'm there. I'm wide open. Just convince me the covenant of grace, and I'm there whole hog. And I sat there class after class after class after class, and everything was great. And I'm, you know, I'm a logical guy. I'm following with this flows. This follows. This is exactly right. This deduction, it's irrefutable if you buy the first premise. I finally raised my hand and said, "Dr. Duriani, where does the Bible actually teach the covenant of grace?" Pause. Come on, you're kidding me, right? Tell me you got a verse somewhere. It it it's it's not there. But if you buy that, everything else follows. Anyone else? I can't remember where it is, but um, how do you argue with the dispensationalists concerning Israel Mm -hmm. um, when they say that the covenant is an everlasting covenant and forever? Mm -hmm. Good question. All through the Old Testament, olam is the Hebrew word, and it is translated forever or eternal. And it's all over the place. Uh, I would take them to something like the Levitical priesthood, which is also said to be forever. And God says, Aaron and his sons will be priests before me forever, using that word. And we know from the New Testament that forever there can't mean never-ending, because they are done away with. The, Hebrew, the book of Hebrews is almost entirely written to say the old stuff has passed away. The Levitical priesthood gives way to the Melchizedekian priesthood, which is Christ. Jesus doesn't even qualify to be a priest because he's not from the tribe of Levi, he's from the tribe of Judah. So I would go back and say, if you're going to be consistent, then there has to be a renewal of the Levitical and Aaronic priesthood. And some of them, the classical guys, would agree with that. And then they say, yes, there are going to be sacrifices, but those sacrifices are not going to be for atonement, they're going to be memorial, to remember the sacrifice of Christ. And I say, great, where does the Bible say that? And they have nowhere to go. So, it's kind of like the word all in the New Testament. All doesn't always mean all, but it always means all that it means. You can write that down. Um, same thing with uh, forever. It doesn't mean never ending. It means for a long, long time. Uh, I would attach it to the covenant. But that's, that's where I would go with him and say, all right, if we're going to be consistent, then you've got a whole lot of things that you would say are no longer in existence. they got to come back. There's a question back there. Zidane. Alright, here we go. I think to add on to that, if you go to Second Samuel chapter seven, um, verse thirteen, you can also bring the approach that David was his throne was going to be established forever. And uh, the dispensationalists try to fit that into a thousand years. Right. And so And they would argue that has to be literally fulfilled. Right. So in classical dispensationalism, they will they will not accept that Christ is. The fulfillment of that, but that David's going to be resurrected and take the throne, which the New Testament says explicitly: Christ is David on the throne. Yeah, very good point. Very good point. Anyone else? Javier, back there. How do those? <coughs> Excuse me. How do those who um, hold to the idea that? all of God's promises to Israel will be fulfilled deal with the way all of those promises are presented which is with if you obey, if you observe how do they deal with that? Uh, They will appeal to words like eternal or forever um, that kind of thing they will appeal to the character of God that he is gracious and merciful And that in many of the prophets, there's always a remnant that is preserved and that God will always preserve a remnant. So he will bring about a a group of Israelites who are devoted to him. Many of the Old Testament prophets do talk in that language, that there will come a day when I will give them a, a love for me again. I will wipe them clean. In fact, some of the classical dispensationalists argued that the new covenant is not even one we're in. That there is a new covenant when physical, ethnic Israel will have circumcised hearts and they will love God and then he will be able, they will keep the if part in the new covenant. Again, most of them, the progressives have backed off of that, but there are still some that hold that, that say, we're not in the new covenant, it's still future just for Israel. So when God circumcises their heart, they keep the terms of the covenant, then they will receive the blessings. And of course, we would respond and say, are you suggesting they're going to keep the covenant perfectly? I don't know how they would respond to that, but that's the question I would ask. Very good. Great questions. Well, our time is drawing nigh, so let me just wrap this up with a few statements. We need to understand just how vital our presuppositions are as we come to the Scripture. Every one of us reads every text of Scripture with presuppositions. You can't get away from it. You come to a text with a certain body of knowledge and that impacts what you read in the passage. We need to be always careful that we can tie our presuppositions back to the Scripture itself. If you believe, if you're committed to a covenant of works and a covenant of grace, if that's your presupposition coming in, then you can explain all the things about baptism and the Holy Spirit that we've been talking about. It fits that system because of your presupposition. If your presupposition is, there will be a literal fulfillment of everything promised to Israel, then you can explain away the passages that seem to say otherwise because that's your starting place and you're not going to give that up. We must always be careful that we can ground our presuppositions in the scripture. And what I've been trying to argue for is all the passages, the reason we spent so much time looking at individual passages of scripture, I was trying to show you what the New Testament teaches and inform your presuppositions so that you look at other texts from those standpoints. But, but how we approach the Bible is crucial in understanding, and we must understand our presuppositions. I also want to remind you that the Old Covenant did its job. Remember, it's a ministry, or it was a ministry, of death and condemnation. You and I should learn from the Old Covenant. If God were to come to us and say, I will bless you, i will give you eternal life if you will obey me perfectly we must learn from the old covenant and realize that is horrible news if our blessing is ever contingent upon obedience we have no hope we have certain guarantee of condemnation so though we're not under the old covenant we can learn from it and it can motivate us it should motivate us to rejoice to give thanks to celebrate the new covenant that we have been forgiven for every single sin no matter how great or how small that we have been granted the righteousness of christ himself who did keep the old covenant law and we stand now as though we were perfect in god's sight because of the new covenant in his blood And the holy spirit has been given to us He indwells us, he confirms with our spirit that we are God's children, he leads us in the paths of righteousness, he reveals to us our pride and selfishness and other sins and helps us overcome them, and he produces in us love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and self-control, those are all blessings of the new covenant. And it is my prayer, even if you don't become an expert in new covenant theology, though I hope you do, I hope you leave here and leave this study with a great joy in your heart that we are members of the new covenant. Amen.